0: The first scripture lesson this morning is probably the most beloved and repeated text in all of the Hebrew Bible. It is precious to our Jewish friends. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart, Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign upon your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." And then the second lesson this morning is from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Please listen even more closely than you ordinarily do to the text of this anthem because it is an almost exact translation of the scripture lesson from the New Testament this morning. As you heard, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one birth, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As long as anybody can remember, the human family has attached significance to certain mystical or sacred numbers. For instance, the numbers 1, 3, 5, 7, 12, 40, and 50 come up over and over again in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. And so Joe and Katie and I are going to preach this sermon series called Counting on God. It has seven parts. Even the number of sermons is magical. I just noticed this, but the first four prime numbers in our system, 1, 3, 5, and 7, are sacred in the Bible. I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's important, but maybe Joe and Katie will tell you. And if you think this ancient superstition or magical thinking about numbers belongs to the childhood of the, ra- of the race, think again. Does anybody know what triskaidekaphobia is? Fear of the number 13, tris, 3, chi and, deca, 10, and phobia, fear. Tris, chi, fear of 3 plus 10, fear of 13. Now there are a number of theories about why 13 is an unlucky number. One suggests that there were 13 people at Jesus' last supper and that Judas was the 13th to sit down. There are also 12.4 lunar cycles in a solar year. And so that short 13th cycle is small and feeble and anemic and maybe dangerous. So in America, 13 is an unlucky number except at Colgate University. If you want to know why, ask a Colgate grad. In some Asian languages, the word for the number four sounds a little like the word for death. So in Asia, they have tetraphobia, fear of the number four. You would never bring four flowers or four cookies to someone in the hospital, for instance. And you would never play the Beatles at your wedding reception because they're a quartet. I made that up, but... (laughs) In certain Asian countries, the mortality rate jumps 20% on the fourth day of the month. Not, the theory goes, because the superstition is true, but because four stresses Asians out. As a result of the confluence of Western and Eastern culture in Asia, many buildings not only lack a 13th floor because of triskaidekaphobia, but also any floor with a four in it because of tetraphobia. And so in some buildings there's no fourth floor, There's no 13th floor, there's no 14th floor, or 24, or 34, or any floor uh, in the 40-somethings, or 54, or 64, or 74, or 84, or 94, so that in a building where the top floor is called the 100th floor, there are really only 80 floors in that building. So, this magical thinking about sacred numbers is not an ancient superstition. It is very much with us even today. And the first of the special numbers, of course, is one. The power of one. And for your Jewish friends, as I mentioned, that text I just read a moment ago is the most repeated and beloved and precious text in the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Shema. Because the first word in Hebrew is shema, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. You shall teach this to your children, bind it on your hand, and write it over the doorpost of your home. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one Now, today we take God's singularity for granted because 40% of the earth's people belong to one of the three great monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But actually, the thesis that there is but one God is both late and small. Belief in many gods is way older and earlier than belief in one God, And even today, among the world's religions, monotheism is a minority report. Most Native American tribes believe in many gods. By some reports, Hinduism believes in 33 million gods. There are no gods in Buddhism. Or to put it differently, you're welcome to your gods. But they don't do anything, and they don't say anything, and they don't mean anything. And the whole point of Buddhism is to liberate you from your dependence upon gods. And in their early days, even the radically monotheistic Jews believed in many gods. There are some ancient Semitic texts from the Near East that suggest that Yahweh had a wife. Her name was Asherah. The radical monotheism of the Shema is post-exilic, which means it comes from the 6th century B.C. after the exile in Babylon. Have you ever heard the word henotheism? Henotheism is the belief that there is one big chief god, but that this big chief god has many quasi-deities working for him or her. In Henotheism, Olympus is crowded. Heaven is full of divinities. So the Greek pantheon was essentially henotheistic. Zeus is the CEO god. He's in charge of everything. But he has a whole corporate team of lesser gods, working for him in the C-suite. And so Poseidon is his oceanographer, and Dionysus is his sommelier, and Ares is the brigadier general of his armies, and Aphrodite is his million-dollar matchmaker, his match.com, his eHarmony. Now, it's too complicated to get into just now, but as Judaism grew up and matured and eventually gave birth to Christianity and Islam, the one God thesis won the day. And I guess the thinking goes, if there, are any, if there are any divinities and demons, if there are any principalities and powers whatsoever, if there is any invisible but palpable infinity beneath, above, and behind the world we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, it has to be just the one unmoved mover who fires the burning suns and spins the flying spheres, Yes? If there are any gods, there has to be just one. We take that for granted. But the danger of monotheism is that it rarely leads to monohumanism, right? That is to say the feeling that we are all of the same family. We're all children of God. Have you noticed this, how inhospitable the three radically monotheistic faiths are? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they get arrogant in their distinct certitudes and insist that their understanding of God is exclusively accurate. That's how that religion professor at Wheaton College fell afoul of her board and administration when she insisted that Muslims and Christians and Jews all worship the same gods. Heaven forfend, said the evangelicals. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Monotheism is inherently inhospitable to the other and the different. And so the Nazis persecute the Jews because the Jews don't see God through Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jews then in turn persecute the Palestinians because Arabs are not the chosen people. And round and round it goes and the human family is torn apart. Monotheism rarely leads to monohumanism, which is just my made up word for talking about the one human family. We're all children of God. And so, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul is just riffing on the ancient Shema. The Lord our God is one, he says, but then he expands his point by a country mile. He says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one birth, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and in all and through all. One God, one human family. Now, Paul is writing this to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, but he's writing it for his fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish Christians, who were trying to build this towering wall between the two halves of the church, yes? Trying to keep the Gentiles and the Jews separate. No, 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 says Paul. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one human family. You're all children of God. And it's so sad when our belief in God's singularity divides rather than unites the human family. You know, of course, that the Muslims have their own Shema, right? It's called the Shahada, and it's the first of the five pillars of Islam. The Shahada is to Islam, what the Shema is to to the Jews. It goes like this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And when Muhammad wrote those words, he was just cribbing cribbing from Moses. One God. His name is Allah, not Yahweh. And that's what those terrorists were shouting when they turned those giant jets into bombs and flew them into the Twin Towers on 9-11. You are not proper members of God's family. They were trying to tell us, you deserve to die. Last July, I visited my daughter in Connecticut, and while I was there, I went to this wonderful Broadway play called Come From Away. Has anybody seen Come From Away? After those planes hit the Twin Towers on September 11th, with those terrorists reciting the Shahada, the FAA instantly grounded every American domestic flight in the United States. Wherever they were, they went straight down to the nearest airport. And when those planes hit the Twin Towers, the FAA closed U.S. airspace for the first time in history. When the towers fell, 500 international flights were in the air on their way to the United States. 250 of them were close enough to their points of origin so that they could do a 180 and return to where they came from. But 250 flights carrying, get this, 40,000 people landed in Canada, Halifax, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. 38 flights landed at Gander International Airport in Newfoundland. When Gander Airport was built in 1938, it was the largest airport in the world and also one of the busiest because until the 1960s, you could not jump the pond in a single hop without refueling. And so they refueled at Gander Airport on transatlantic flights. Since the 1960s, Gander Airport has been a very sleepy place. The whole population of Newfoundland is 500,000 people on this gigantic island. And on September 11, 2001, the population of the town of Gander was just a little less than 10,000. And then 6,759 passengers, 9 cats, 11 dogs, and 2 great apes got off those 38 planes Almost doubling the population. And the Newfoundlanders went to work and practically didn't sleep for five days till the last of those passengers got back on their jets and finally made their way to their American destinations. So they put cots and mattresses on every inch of bare floor in the schools and gyms on the community center. They made thousands and thousands and thousands of sandwiches. They began calling Gander Casserole City. The locals called the passengers the Plain people. And they invited them home to take showers or to go to bed. And for security reasons, the passengers were not allowed to access their checked luggage. And so there was all this medicine in that checked luggage, yes? And so the pharmacists at Gander's two drugstores worked around the clock, calling around the world to fill those prescriptions. 30 or 40 foreign languages. I don't know, maybe Ritalin is Ritalin and Amoxicillin is Amoxicillin in every language, but that can't have been easy. Hannah, one of the plain people from New York, befriends Beulah, a Newfoundlander, and Hannah teases Beulah. She says, Beulah, why are Newfoundlanders so bad at knock-knock jokes? And Beulah says, I don't know, Hannah. Why? Hannah says, let's try it. I'll be the Newfoundlander. You start. And so Beulah says, knock-knock. Hannah says, come on in. The door's open. (laughs) That's a terrible knock-knock joke but it's a wonderful way to live. And so in these schools and community centers, there's a woman sitting there in a hijab and a Jordanian man pressing his forehead to the floor five times a day, saying his prayers in Arabic. And there are Hindu people singing songs in Sanskrit and rabbis chanting prayers in Hebrew and Christians singing hymns in English and German. And a gay couple wonders if they should admit who they are in a small-town Canada place in the first year of the 21st century. But nobody cares. My cousin's gay, offers someone. So is my grandson, someone else cheerfully joins in. And so, that's why Gander, Newfoundland is one of the few places outside the United States that now owns a piece of World Trade Center steel. People at that time were such a striking antithesis to those haters who died saying God is one. Claude Elliott, Gander's mayor, says, what we consider the simplest thing in life is to help people. You're not supposed to look at their religion or their color or their sexual orientation. They're just people. Welcome to the friends who have come from away. Welcome to the locals who have always said they'd stay. If you're coming from Toledo or you're coming from Taipei, because we come from everywhere, we all come from away. So welcome to the rock. Love that radical monohumanism. We are all in the same family. Or as St. Paul would put it, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one birth, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and in all and through all. Radical monotheism, radical monohumanism, the power of one. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.